The focus on the grid maybe is not necessarily the only place that we should be focusing. As you point out, there's a lot to do with actually bouncing back from disasters like this and even in the moment responding to disasters like this. Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, Dr. Emily Grubert, a professor at Georgia Tech, joins my colleague Stephen Namoli to look at the recent winter storm in Texas that caused massive grid failures. Emily is an expert in energy, water, and infrastructure, focusing on how communities can make better decisions about large infrastructure systems. Emily and Stephen look not only at the immediate impacts in Texas, but also in the larger issues for the electricity grid going forward, namely, how to prepare for worsening damages as a result of climate change. I turn it over to Stephen now for this great conversation. Emily, thank you so much for joining us on Energy 360. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I'm going to kind of set the scene for a second and then turn it over to you. From February 13 to 17, a major winter storm battered the state of Texas, bringing incredibly cold temperatures and destructive weather. Uh, The temperatures led to record power demand and the weather battered power and natural gas infrastructure. What happened next? A lot of people were out of power for much longer than they expected, I think is the major thing that happened next in terms of thinking about this in disaster terms. So not only was the electricity demand extraordinarily high for this time of year, but the natural gas was a demand was also extraordinarily high for this time of year. I think in both cases, they set records. As a result, a lot of people weren't able to get the fuel they needed to keep their homes warm and so on. Um, and like you say, partially because a lot of the infrastructure that was associated with what you might have expected to fill that gap for that extreme demand was not available when we expected that it might be largely due to freezing conditions. We can expect that climate change is going to continue driving extreme weather events like this, and that can cause these major disruptions. What are the most important ways that we can improve the grid to both mitigate the effects of these events, but then also bounce back from the events that do happen? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think one of the things that I've been saying a lot since we've seen all of this unfold is that the focus on the grid maybe is not necessarily the only place that we should be focusing. As you point out, there's a lot to do with actually bouncing back from disasters like this and even in the moment responding to disasters like this in terms of emergency infrastructure and so on. But even more than that, I think when we think about the energy supply system and with a lot of other infrastructures, there's two halves of this equation. There's sort of the supply side and the demand side. What we saw in this disaster was that it was caused really by the confluence of both. So exceptionally high demand and exceptionally low supply relative to expectations. And I think one of the things that comes up when we start looking at disasters like this, but also at what we see under heat wave conditions and so forth, is that actually doing things that keep people in the energy services that they need without necessarily relying quite so much on active energy use can be a really, really powerful tool. So people have been talking about efficiency for a long time. And I think an event like this really shows why things like building efficiency are really, really powerful. Because in particular, I know one of the things that's been kind of an interesting conversation recently is that a lot of Texas homes are not really insulated to withstand this type of thing. 
What's interesting is you do actually benefit from insulation on the hot side too. So when you're using your air conditioning and so forth, having a more insulated home would be helpful. So when we think about things that we could do, it's not just about you know figuring out ways to make sure that power plants are available when you expect them to be or adding more capacity and things like that. It's also, can we do things that are going to reduce demand or reduce peak demand and still provide people the same level of energy services? So I think as we think about this in kind of an integrated and holistic way from an infrastructure perspective, really thinking about whether there are opportunities to say, hey, keeping people safer and more comfortable um, by really investing in our building infrastructure might be part of this conversation as well. There's a lot of benefits of doing that that go well beyond just grid emergency management, obviously. This is probably not something you would do purely for grid emergency management, but you know, a more insulated house actually keeps your energy bills lower all year. It keeps energy demand lower all year. And especially as we're talking about decarbonizing the grid fully and really turning over our infrastructure and really needing to build out a massive, massive amount of low carbon infrastructure, anything that we can do to kind of keep people's bills low, keep people comfortable and safe inside their buildings and reduce the amount of new infrastructure that we need to build on the supply side is kind of a, a triple useful activity to be thinking about. It's not something that happens immediately, but neither is building a whole bunch of new power plants. That is a really good point. Uh, and I think those are things that are that are going to be on the table, on the, the topic of discussion over the next you know, 10, 20, 30 years, uh, not just in Texas, of course, but also across the country as we're trying to figure out how to decarbonize the grid, how our system is going to change, how we continue to get the services that we need. One thing that I'm really curious about here is a, a lot of the time in debates about what we should do to, to deal with events like this, but then also, you know, kind of more broadly what we should do to guard against other, other uh, problems as well with resilience, as well as climate mitigation, as well as, you know, all of these kinds of issues. There always seems to be a tension here between uh, managing the supply side and managing the demand side and specifically in in figuring out well do we have the the money to do both do we have the capacity to do both uh, how, how do you find a balance there between those two the supply and the demand sides there yeah i mean it's an integrated system and i think you're right that there's challenges in thinking about what the most effective ways to do things might be but in the end it is something where both of these things are going to interact with each other in kind of important ways i think what is true in terms of investment and how we think about allocating resources and things like that is that the answer on the societal level is probably pretty different than the answer on the individual level or the the private level so to speak partially because you just have fundamentally different organizations and fundamentally different types of investment in these two halves of the system so the types of money that you have access to on the supply side is very different from the types of money that that you have access to on the demand side. Um, and frankly, the, the types of ability that you have to sort of regulatorily mandate something look very different on both of those ends too. So we can do things like institute tighter building codes and so on, but it's not really the case that you have a public utilities commission going and saying, you know, we're gonna go check everybody's house uh, <laughs> efficiency really. So things like that do end up turning into to fairly interesting conversations. I think one of the things that is actually interesting about this is as we think about the future of energy services supply is really that we're moving into a new paradigm of what that could look like. So historically speaking, there's always been an expectation that supply will be the thing that changes to meet demand. 
And there's been a little bit of demand response, particularly on the industrial side, when people started to realize that some of this actually was kind of important for grid function. So um, like one of my favorite couple of examples, actually, like linear accelerators have long known that they can't just you know, demand a terawatt for a couple of nanoseconds and have the grid be okay with that. So they've had like flywheels and stuff on site. Um, similarly, I think it's uh, in North Dakota where there's a, a coal mine that had an electric drag line and they were, they were basically the demand response for the, for the whole state for a while. When they had supply constraints, they just asked them to turn off the drag line. Um, so things like that we have had for a while. But I think more seriously, when we think about what the future could look like, the idea that we no longer have supply that is extremely easy to change in order to meet demand, um, which is partially why we're talking so much about batteries and storage and things like that to kind of smooth out the, the matching of wind, solar and things like that to demand. That type of paradigm shift, I think, is also a really important opportunity to say, well, what's, what's the demand side doing and how are we thinking about the demand side, not just as an issue for people um, immediately in their own homes to save money or something like that, but actually also as a grid strategy and as an energy supply strategy. And so that paradigm of actually recognizing that it's not just something that affects the individual, but actually really, really does affect you know, how, much, how many power plants we need to build. Um, I think may lead us to new places in terms of trying to get a little bit creative about being willing to fund stuff like that. So in California, the, um, the money that utilities make is actually decoupled from their sales. And so they've long had a different incentive than a lot of other utilities in terms of whether they're willing to invest in efficiency on the user side and things like that. So you can get rebates from your power company for a more efficient refrigerator and things along those lines because the idea is that if they don't have to buy a new power plant to meet more demand, they may actually save money on the, over the long term and that helps the customers and things like that. I think we may start to see more thinking along those lines as people do realize that it literally is the difference between building more power plants and not. It's not really the case that we have right now where you have a bunch of thermal generators that you would actually like to run more because that means that you can recover some of those costs in a different way or something along those lines. As we're really changing over the system, really each incremental unit of demand is a new project. Probably each incremental project has different difficulties, different permitting challenges, all those sorts of things. So as we realize the the really, really significant issues with expanding our grid, thinking about the demand side as part of this integrated system, I think starts to look a lot more attractive and we may see some more creative ways of, of actually addressing some of those issues. So it sounds like uh, not only is it important to identify supply side uh, additions or changes to be made. And not only is it important to figure out kind of the demand response and the, the, the ability to maybe create flexible demand, uh, it's also really important to figure out how the rate design on the regulatory level uh, creates different incentives for different actors. I think that's right. I tend to be a little bit less convinced that rate design alone is going to change behavior at an individual level. I tend to be a bit more on the side of thinking that, you know, a building code is more likely to, to be useful here. But I think particularly as we start to talk about industrial electrification and adding in electricity demand in places where we haven't seen it before for things like heating, um, but really for large commercial users and large industrial users that maybe haven't seen that quite as much. That is, I think, a place where rate design probably has more of a role just because and honestly, this is something I've been thinking about quite a lot lately. We're, we're likely to see the grid actually look very different 10 years from now. And so if you have a whole bunch of 
of users turning over to electricity where they haven't had electricity before and designing their systems around the rate structures of today, it's actually potentially a really important missed opportunity. So thinking about what we might want those rate structures to look like in the future is also important. Because I think this is too something that gets kind of interesting on, on sort of the rate driven demand response side of it. For household consumers, we tend to think about people reacting to power costs in a way that's pretty flexible. So I might run my dishwasher at a different time of day or something like that. Those can be really important. And we see a lot of aggregators putting those kinds of demand response together and doing that somewhat effectively. The really big demand response opportunities are more, I think, on the giant industrial user sides that can do big peak shaving at a time. But those users are not going to be super excited about shifting what they're doing day to day in response to just what the wind happens to be doing right now. So if I've got a giant process that involves heating something up and if I turn it off, it's going to freeze and now I have to like pry metal off my shop floor if it freezes, I'm not going to be super excited about moving my process around day to day. But if you tell me in advance that, hey, we're going to have a lot more solar on the grid in the future, so I would rather have you have your big peak demand in the middle of the day rather than the middle of the night, that's something I can design around and choose my shifts around and things like that at the time when I'm really planning my processes. I can probably do that once or twice. I probably can't do that day to day, but there is a lot of opportunity to, to really work with a lot of those types of customers to think about how we can match their process designs with the grid needs a little bit better. So I want to talk about planning for a second. Um, there's been a lot of discussion in recent days about whether Texas should have planned for a winter storm like this, whether they should have anticipated something like this. Uh, also, how the state's grid is, is weatherized for heat events rather than extreme cold events. And also how the outages exceeded even the grid operators, you know, worst case scenario that they planned for and and, and discussed uh, late last year. It raises for me the question of how do you determine the bounds of what risk is reasonable to plan for? Yeah, that's a great question. I've been thinking a lot about this myself, actually, because I'm not a meteorologist. And honestly, I'm not that well suited to say, should this have been within design conditions or not? That said, I think what is very clear from this event is that we are going to sometimes see things that aren't. And so I think the big lesson to take away is that sometimes we are going to see failures. Sometimes we are going to see things outside of design parameters. That's probably more likely because of climate change. So what do we do given that that's going to happen sometimes in terms of what actually this looks like in terms of yeah weatherizing and actually planning around what those ranges should be and so forth. I think one of the the really kind of interesting conversations is about how much cost you're willing to bear for what kinds of different weatherization events. And that is something that is really, really complicated because of course, what we're seeing now is that because there wasn't necessarily an investment in, in distributing the costs of being prepared for an event like this, the people that are bearing the costs of what happened in both literally health issues, in some cases deaths, but also in these massive power bills and stuff like that, it's really inequitably distributed. So there is an argument to be made for over-investing to prevent an event like this just to kind of spread that out a little bit. I think as we think about what the design constraints really need to be, though, thinking about whether there are specific types of things that could happen and whether those are points of failure, I suspect is going to be more fruitful than actually thinking about, you know, precisely what temperatures are we going to see over what aerial extent of my grid and how long is it going to last? So things like if my pipe freezes, will my whole power plant go down? I think are maybe more interesting ways of thinking about this than, you know, are we going to see the exact same event that we saw with this particular Texas freeze? 
issues. And so thinking through those as kind of a consequence first and working backwards to, to determine how you would have to change your system to actually address those things, I think that kind of thing can actually be super helpful. So yeah, things like, you know, if my cooling water gets too hot, how many of my power plants are going to be unavailable and how do we think about that? Or if it does freeze, how many of these plants are going to be tripped offline and how do we think about that? All of that said, I think one of the really difficult things about this, honestly, is, um, and again, I'm not a meteorologist and I'm not a, a huge expert in kind of the weatherization recommendations that were made last time. However, it's not totally clear to me that some of the weatherization recommendations that were made about the power system would necessarily have helped in this situation for a couple of reasons. So one, that we saw such a massive challenge associated with the fact that the natural gas supply and the power plants are so integrated. So big failures in the natural gas system that are outside the jurisdiction of the power sector, um, but also just such high demand that they weren't actually able to supply everybody at once. It's not necessarily something even that weatherization could have helped. I know a lot of gas wells were shut in, and so I, I don't wanna say that this is definitely what happened until we get a little bit more detail on, on how these numbers actually worked out, but it's sort of this massive demand on both of these two energy supply systems, plus weatherization challenges, both on the natural gas system and on the power plant system simultaneously. Um, that is something where we should ask questions about what it would have taken to prevent that. I would rather ask more questions about what we should have done instead to make sure that people weren't as harmed by it. I think the last thing that I'll say on that one too, especially for these really rare weather events, one of the things that is very, very challenging about trying to design for these types of rare outcomes, that you might think you're ready for something like this and then you aren't. And I think that's what we saw in Texas. And this is a lot of the conversation about, well, you know, was it because of the way that ERCOT manages its markets, so on and so forth? I think there are a lot of questions to be asked about the way that costs get distributed in that market system. But I don't necessarily think that a different market design would have prevented people from not realizing that their power plants weren't going to function under these conditions. Because I think what we did see was that a lot of units that ERCOT thought were available were not. And that's the kind of thing that's hard to know in advance. You maybe have weatherized your pipes or you have secured your natural gas supply or something like that, and then something goes wrong and you're not really sure. I think the example that I was, I was giving on the internet the other day is that a lot of the time our emergency planning is something that we can't test for in situ. So, you know, you can invest a bunch, but if you've never actually seen those conditions, you're not sure if it's going to work. And kind of the local example for a lot of people, you know, does your emergency flashlight have batteries that are working? Have you checked in the last five years? <laughs> How's your fire extinguisher doing? Like you don't necessarily know that those things are going to be available for you when you need them. And that's something that we can plan around and guard against with maintenance and inspections and so forth. But the fact remains that, especially when you have something that's grid wide like this, you may not have realized that your system wasn't going to work. And that's a really, really tricky situation. Again, not arguing that that's necessarily why this particular event happened, but as we think about responding to future extreme events, I think we do need to acknowledge that there are going to be conditions where we mess up and there are really, really severe consequences to that. So what do we do when we realize that we're about to mess up or that we have messed up to make sure that people are okay through these types of events? I wanted to touch on uh, a theme that that comes that has come up in a lot of the writing and interviews that you've done, and that has come up a lot in this discussion as well, which is uh, you've talked about optimizing for human safety, uh, which is a phrase that I, I really I really like. I find it really um, compelling. Do we need to change how we plan our power systems to optimize for human safety? 
It's a really good question. And again, I think one of the, the challenges in doing that is that there's a lot of distributed decision making that falls on a bunch of different people and a bunch of different organizations and so forth. But I think we do. And I think that a lot of that needs to be actually recognizing that there are integrations between multiple infrastructures. So thinking about the fact that Again, demand and supply are two halves of the same coin on the energy services provision side is, I think, the most immediately relevant one. So thinking about the demand side while we're planning our electricity systems is a way that you get a lot closer at how do we make sure people are getting energy services under a wide range of conditions, both for safety and comfort and opportunity. In addition to that, I think really thinking about some of those other integrated systems becomes more of a focus when we do start to optimize around providing people services and keeping people safe. And so the the huge disaster right now, or I think it's mostly passed in a lot of places, but a lot of people were out of water in Texas for days. Um, and you know, the issues both with not having water because your pipes were burst and not having safe water because the treatment plants were out and things like that. We know that the energy and water systems are integrated like very, very clearly. This is something that we see again and again in a lot of different ways. But thinking about, you know, what do we actually need to account for when we're designing this as an integrated infrastructure system that's providing people kind of safety critical systems and services, you start to actually invoke a lot more of those pieces of the system when you're designing. Again, part of the reason why this is so challenging is that it's different jurisdictions, it's different scales, it's different people involved, it's different pots of money, different grants that you have access to and so forth. That doesn't necessarily have to be that way. I'm not arguing that this is an easy thing to do, but if we can move our thinking a little bit more to at least trying to design more around service provision, a lot of the other stuff follows. So I think the other thing that I've been trying to be very clear about is that designing around service provision doesn't mean ignoring the grid. Like obviously if the power had stayed on, this would have been a much better situation, but it's not the only thing that that matters in these circumstances. And I think to that end as well, when you look at a lot of the other regions that were subjected to these deep freezes that didn't have quite as spectacular of outages as Texas did, you know, there were a ton of people out of power in New Orleans too. And there were people out of power through Kansas, through Oklahoma, not for as long and not as deep, I don't think. But, um, you know, our systems are not necessarily differentiated between like what Texas did and everybody else, I guess. And in a lot of those cases too, this is another point that I've been trying to make kind of clearly. There are a lot of people in these places that even if the power did stay on, they were kind of running into trouble just because it got so cold. There are a lot of people that are houseless or insufficiently sheltered under conditions like this. And so thinking about, you know, how do we make sure that everybody is safe in an event like this does lead you to very different processes and thinking, I think, than just saying, how do we make sure that the power stays on at all times? Thinking about um, this optimizing for human safety, are there particularly like policy and regulatory levers that you could try to uh, design or or make use of to make that a little bit easier? Yeah, I think this is me maybe seeing everything as a nail because I've got a hammer, <laughs> but um, I teach sustainable buildings. And one of the things that we talk about a lot in that class is that it's not just about energy efficiency. It's not just about like traditional green building. There's also a sustainability element in terms of what those buildings are actually doing for you. So the example that I often like to use, is like, is a homeless shelter a sustainable building? And if so, is that different from like a big mansion that's super energy efficient? And why do we think about one of these as sustainable and maybe not the other 
everyone when you first start talking about it. Um, but again, because I, I think about buildings a lot, I, I do actually think that the building code and a lot of like zoning ordinances and stuff like that are pretty critical to this more integrated design system, largely because, you know, we do spend so much of our time inside and because buildings are the location of so many of the flows that provide us services. So especially when you're talking about like really critical events where people's safety is at risk you're probably going to be in a building at some level, whether that is your house or a shelter or something like that. Those are pretty critical pieces of this puzzle that we actually can mediate a bit through some of these building codes and so forth. I think beyond that though, when we talk about policy and regulation, a lot of this does also need to focus on what our emergency response procedures are. These are both actually, both building codes and emergency response procedures are often pretty local. So it's not so much that we necessarily need a big federal legislation effort to, to address these types of things, but thinking carefully about can we have model ordinances? Are these things that we can replicate in ways that we know are going to work? And can we actually design them for resilience to multiple different kinds of events like this? I think there's a lot to be said for those types of efforts. So in addition to some of the more energy planning stuff, really thinking about how do we keep people safe in their buildings and what do we do when we have an emergency, I suspect will pay dividends and is something that we can learn from these events without having to have each individual grid <laughs> learn what their what their breaking point is. Going back to, to thinking about what has happened here with Texas specifically, are there market or regulatory changes that you think would help prevent problems like this in the future? It's a great question. I think largely from my perspective, the, the major, major failure that is kind of market correctable is, is the point that the costs have been so inequitably distributed. And I know there's a lot of chatter about, you know, what are the incentives for bailing people out in these situations? Okay, but like no one's should be paying an $18,000 power bill. <laughs> and so like things like that, where you're essentially allowing people to accept risk that maybe goes beyond what people would expect to ever happen in a circumstance like this, and therefore putting the, the burden of paying for a lot of those investments over a very small number of people. It's partially why we have regulated utilities in the first place. I don't know that full regulation is necessarily the answer, but I think the real market failure here is more about who's paying for what um, rather than necessarily the, the way that some of the power supplies were procured. Again, I, I suspect we'll be talking about this for months, if not years, in terms of whether designing those systems a little bit differently would have caused there to be a different supply situation. Um, but I know that on the, the cost-bearing end of it, that's something that is definitely associated with how the market is set up. And so thinking about that as, as a way to guide future moves um, you know, certainly there will be cries of paternalism where you're saying, well, people should be allowed to expose themselves to wholesale markets. <laughs> well, maybe, <laughs> probably not, actually. And so the 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 way that a lot of these costs are being really, really hammered onto a very small number of people, I think, is is the huge failure here. I think that's a really great point. Um, I mean, is this something that would would be addressed at the local level, state level, federal level or like maybe all of the above? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that's part of why a lot of these types of policy processes are complex, because the way that we've historically distributed power over a number of different jurisdictions is pretty patchy. So there are some things that are probably meaningful on the federal level. Um, so when we talk about grid integration, making sure that we have the ability to move power from one part of the country to another, that's the kind of thing that probably is 
something that has to happen at the federal level. And particularly, um, it's kind of interesting, not just because of this event. I think a lot of us that do energy modeling have been talking about new transmission interlinkages for a long time, because as we change our fuel systems, the location of the resources that we actually have available becomes more important in terms of being able to supply things. And so more interconnections to move energy from where it is to where you need it is pretty clearly going to be a, a really big priority. So that part of it is certainly federal. I think the other areas where federal intervention could be kind of interesting are in thinking about whether there are minimum standards and whether there are model standards that could be distributed throughout the country. I suspect that people would not react super well to a federal building code or something along those lines. Maybe it's worth trying. Um, but building codes do tend to be pretty local, partially because there is a really wide variability of what you're looking for from a code. So, for example, like California has really strict seismic standards in a way that here in Georgia we don't. I'm from California originally, and I moved out here and uh, saw foundations of a couple of buildings and almost had a heart attack. But like we don't get earthquakes out here, so it's fine. But things like that that are actually probably better handled at the local level are partly why we have building codes that are this distributed. Um, but having standards that basically say, you know, if this is your climate, we recommend that this is the standard that you're following, or here's a, a baseline for what you might expect to be able to get out of a building code. That type of thing might be useful to have some external support for, because not every local jurisdiction is going to have the expertise to really put something together that makes a ton of sense for them locally. So not putting that burden onto local jurisdictions while still allowing some flexibility, I think is probably the move there. On the emergency planning stuff, that actually is already relatively standardized in some ways across the country. Um, so, you know, when you have an event that reaches a certain threshold, a lot of the time federal jurisdiction takes over and so forth. So I think I'm not the right person to speak on this. I know there are some really, really great emergency response and disaster response people that have been talking about this event in particular. But that's another area where I think there's probably some combination of more local planning and, and more federal guidance. Are you optimistic about our ability to, whether it's at the local, state, federal level, you know, whatever level it is, are you optimistic about our ability to perhaps do more of this optimizing for human safety? I'm very optimistic that we can. I'm very optimistic that we know how to do it. And I'm very optimistic that there are a ton of people that are working really, really hard on this type of thing and have been for a while. So I think there's a lot of really, really cool energy in this area. And again, we know how to do this. I'm less optimistic that um, that it's necessarily going to reach the halls of power <laughs> in terms of something that feels like a priority. I do hope that as we think a little bit harder about communicating what we need to do to adapt to climate change in particular, that some of this becomes really self-evidently important. So again, I, th I think we have not necessarily grappled with the point that if we're trying to decarbonize our energy system, we also really should be thinking at the, about the demand side because every time we can kind of structurally reduce demand in a way that doesn't reduce people's access to safety and services, that's a huge win in terms of the amount of investment that we need to make on the grid side and the amount of permitting we need to do and all these things that we know are going to be very, very difficult for that rollout. So I'm optimistic that continuing to talk about it and continuing to have a lot of really, really good voices on this is, is available and is hopefully going to, to reach some of these conversations sooner rather than later. Well, Emily, uh, this has been a fantastic conversation. I, I really appreciate you joining us and, and sharing your insights with us. And uh, I hope that we can uh, have you back on again sometime soon. Yeah, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks to Stephen and Emily for that great discussion. 
You can find links in our bio to a recent piece that Stephen wrote about what happened in Texas, as well as links to some of Emily's recent work. Look for more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts or at CSIS.org. You can follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. As always, thanks for listening. Thank you.